Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning. We're going to jump into our time of teaching here this morning. I think I'm a little loud. Hey, on your way back, would you guys would you guys bless me this morning and just maybe move forward? We're a little we're thinner today. No people are sick and out of town for various reasons. Boy, just be a oh, am I on? Okay. It'd be a huge blessing if you just came down about four or five rows. I mean, if you're a nursing mother in the back with the baby, I understand that. I promise I don't spit beyond or I will not spray beyond the first two rows. I promise. So am I through? Am I through? There we go. Okay. Very quiet. I was very loud before. I'll talk loud. Okay. Wonderful to see you this morning. I am super excited about our text for this, for this morning here, Isaiah chapter 49. Um, and trust God has something inspiring, challenging, edifying for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 49, or you can follow along in the bulletin. Uh, it's printed there as well. Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the entire chapter. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. 
Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried in their sh- on their shoulders. <clears throat> Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives from a tyrant's from a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. As we open it up this morning, I pray you give us clarity. I pray you'd speak to us. God, I pray you'd give us understanding of what you say here. God, I pray that you would anoint me and empower me with, by your spirit to speak your words, to speak it clearly and powerfully and with authority. And God, I pray you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive the implanted word, God, which is able to save our souls, which is able to change us and transform us. God, do your work, we pray today. Help us to see maybe things a little differently than we have before from this text. And I pray this in Jesus' name for your own glory and might and power. Amen. One challenge that we have as we go through a long uh, stretch of scripture like this, especially a stretch of scriptures as we're going through in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, is there are some very common th- themes and threads throughout it. And you could easily, over the course of five chapters, say essentially the same thing from week to week. So I want to be careful not to do that because 49 is similar to some things in 48 and 47 and 46 and 50 and 51 and 52. So um, here's where I want to go this morning. I want to start off with some questions. <clears throat> What is your view of this? Uh, what is your view for the future of this world? What is your view for the future of this world we live in? Surely you have a view. Maybe you don't live with a conscious understanding of what it is, but surely you do have a view 
as you live your daily life, you unconsciously live in light of a future that you see ahead of you. Should we live with an expectation of the advance of Christ's kingdom throughout the whole earth? Is it reasonable to expect the gospel of Jesus Christ to triumph? And I mean triumph, to be victorious through all the nations of the world. What if this were accurate first, right? What if this were actually true? And what if this dominated your thoughts? The triumph of the gospel, the kingdom of Christ advancing and spreading like wildfire through the nations. Or what? maybe not dominate. What if this was uppermost in your thoughts? What if this was like on your desk, right? Right out in front of you. Something you thought about. Something that was in your thinking for how you lived your life. Do you think you might live differently than you do now? Growing up, I grew up in a church. Grew up going to church my entire life. And I would say growing up, I had what was a left behind, I put that in quotes, view of the future. You guys know the book series Left Behind? You're aware of that, okay? That, that was the view I had growing up, is the view that I was, that was the only view I knew growing up. Fundamental to this view is the idea that Christ is coming back very soon and that the world will go, go from bad to worse to worse to worse, which will only accelerate toward the end in darkness and evil. And then Christ returns. He returns to a world where the gospel has not triumphed, but where it seems like evil, we might even say the devil has triumphed just until he gets back. And then he takes over and makes everything right. This view and its I would say in its variants, uh, there's, I, I realize there's variations of this view, are held by many Christians today. And I don't want to bash this position, but rather I, I long and I desire to, to advance another one from Isaiah 49. But why is there a prevailing attitude? And I, I, it may not be here, but I, I sense there is a prevailing attitude among Christians that has a pessimistic view of the future. That things are going to go from bad to worse. And it's going to accelerate into darkness and chaos and evil until Jesus comes. Why is this a prevailing view among Christians? Well, I think there's some underlying assumptions. I think there's some underlying presuppositions that Christians hold that I think could be challenged. One of them is that the doom and gloom passages in the Bible are simply dealing with reality, right? We, we turn on the evening news, we read the newspapers, and we see that there are things that are very bad out there. It seems very dark. It seems very gloomy. It seems very... The doomsday preachers seem to have it right. To have a hope-filled view of the future just seems unrealistic in light of the way that things actually are in the world now. And therefore, to have a hope-filled view of the future just doesn't seem to deal with reality. But I would say to have a hope-filled view of the future of Christ's kingdom spreading and triumphing does not require anyone to deny the reality of how things are right now or to gloss over suffering and challenges, and even seeming defeats among God's people. Rather, it means to face the reality of the situation on the ground 
while also believing the prophecies and promises of Scripture in regards to the spread of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And to believe that it actually will be fulfilled, like Revelation eleven fifteen, which says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Another assumption, another underlying assumption that people that, have a, that, that may have a pessimistic view of the future hold is this assumption that Jesus Christ is coming very, very soon. Now, I realize, and I hope I'm among friend, friends here. I think I, I am. I know I'm among friends. But I realize if I were in front of certain, a certain group of people, I might be stoned by saying this. But we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know if we're in the generation that Jesus is coming back, Right? But this assumption is is that Jesus is coming and it's probably like in the next 10 or 15 years or 20 years. But certainly by the end of my life, which I'm only 36, so maybe 50 years, okay, certainly I am the generation when Jesus is coming. But we don't know that. We don't know that. The things that we do know is Matthew 24 says, no one knows the day or hour when Christ comes. Not the angels and not even the Son of God himself. Not even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. But only the Father has fixed and appointed a day. So we know that. No one knows the day or hour. And some might say, well, we shouldn't predict the day or hour. But we can know the general time. Okay? We also know that Matthew twenty four fourteen says the end will not come until the gospel has been preached to all nations. Till the gospel's gone to all nations and not just all countries, not just all, you know, geographical nations in that sense, but to every people group, to every, every nation, every kind of people on the face of the earth. The Joshua Project does an, an amazing job of putting out very accurate and updated material on the unreached peoples that the gospel has not reached yet. Okay? And I think there are like 9,600, 9,700 people groups in the world right now. And there are roughly 4,200 that have no gospel witness in them right now. So we know the end will not come until the gospel has reached them. But not just until there's been a crusade among them, but until they have received Christ. For Revelation chapter 5 says that the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's going to be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. So it's not just we need to send missionaries to hold crusades, but they, they receive Christ, they are ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we know that the end will not come until these things happen. So what if Jesus isn't coming in the next 10 years? What if he doesn't come in the next hundred years? What if it's not for a thousand years? It may change our outlook on the world around us as we see it today. Right? When we have a view that Christ is coming very, very soon, it can easily slide into what I would call a sin of not living with our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, and our great-great-grandchildren in view, right? The Puritans, this, this, um, they were early um, believers in the Upper Northeast and then over in England as well in the 16, 15, 16, and 1700s. They had this optimistic view of the future, not because they lived with rose-colored glasses on, because they were 
They were massively persecuted, but they just believed the prophecies of Scripture that Christ's kingdom would expand. They believed that 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 was actually going to happen in the earth before Jesus came. And what did they do? Here's what they did. They built printing presses. They started schools. They started churches. They wrote lots of books. They took a long-term view of the future and also a hope-filled one. Another underlying assumption, this is the last one I want to talk about, is that these promises of overwhelming success of Christ's kingdom is realized only at the second advent or second coming of Christ when he visibly returns again. I believe these are underlying assumptions that many people have, but what if by God's grace, what if by God's grace, you may hold some of these, but what if by God's grace, you and I could suspend these beliefs for 30 or 40 minutes and hear what Isaiah 49 has to say to us that may help us see things differently. My hope is to advance another understanding, one that I think could change your outlook on life and the Christian life. And will fill you with hope as you think about the future. As you think about the future of this world. So what I want to do is I want to present Isaiah 49 as the future of the world. But first I want to do two things. Before I jump into Isaiah 49, two more things, okay? In this passage, there is a servant that is referred to. Back in Isaiah 42, we talked about how Isaiah uses this phrase, the servant of the Lord, or the servant in one of three ways throughout these chapters. One way is referring to the nation of Israel, which is God's servant. Another way is referring to Cyrus, the king of Persia, who at this time is not even born, but who will be God's servant in the sense that God will use him to do his will in releasing and setting the Israelites free and sending them back to Jerusalem. And the third way that I think is in view in this text is referring to Jesus Christ, God's faithful servant, who is faithful in doing all of God's will. And I think it'll be very clear as we move through this that it's referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. One more thing I want to cover is clearly in this passage, the restoration of the Jewish people to Israel to rebuild the temple, to repair the walls, the reestablishing of temple worship. This is in view here. But I believe mainly as a type of the redemption that Christ brings to the world to both Jew and Gentile. Okay, so certainly it's talking about the Jewish people being restored to Israel and and rebuilding the temple. But I think it's I think it's looking past that. And when we see these massive, expansive statements about what this servant will do, it becomes abundantly clear that there's something more in view here than forty two thousand Jewish people sent back to Jerusalem. Something much more in view here than just that. So let's step through this passage, and I want to hit on several verses and just point out and hope by God's Spirit we can have our eyes enlightened to see that we have much to have hope for in regards to Christ's kingdom being expanded in the earth. Verses 1 to 3, we see this servant commands a worldwide hearing and introduces himself Listen to what he says in verse 1, the first part. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. William Wilberforce was an abolitionist in England in the 19th century, was very instrumental, 
kind of the, the, point of the, the, the point of the arrow, you might say, in abolishing slavery there. It was said of him that he viewed the world as the property of Jesus Christ, to whose kingdom the earth and the fullness thereof must belong. So Jesus Christ here, the servant of the Lord, assumes this place of authority and the right to command the entire world to listen to what he has to say. And what does he say? He says, the Lord has called me for a purpose. Verse two tells, verse two, the servant tells us that his weapon is truth. When he uses this simile, that his mouth is like a sharp sword. So this servant, unlike the kings of the world, will conquer, but will conquer with the words of his mouth or with the truth conquering lies and deception. Verse 3 tells us we see that him reference as the servant, as the servant we, I mentioned earlier, who will bring glory to God. Verse 4 is interesting. It says this, but I said, this, this is the servant speaking, I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. This is likely referring to Jesus Christ and his ministry among the Jewish people when he came into the earth. Remember, if you remember Jesus, it says in John chapter 1, he came to his own. Speaking of the Jewish people, right? He was born a Jew. He came to his own, but his own received him not. They would not receive him. So he came to his people, but he, they wouldn't receive him. So this is, this is speaking of this servant who seems to be frustrated or seems to have his plans frustrated by those who would not receive him, by those that he seems to labor in vain before. Jesus said this in, in Matthew twenty three thirty seven. This is toward the end of his ministry before he went to the cross lamenting the fact that the Jewish people largely had rejected him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Verses 5 and 6 say clearly that Jesus has come, that this servant has come to bring the Jewish people back to God. But if that's all that he's come to do, that's far too small a mission for this servant. In fact, verse 6 says this. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, ethnic Jewish people, and bring them back to the excuse me, bring them back, bring back the preserved of Israel. And then it goes on to say, I will make you as a light for all the nations. Not just Jewish people, but for all of the nations. In other words, it's much too small a mission for this Messiah only to save the Jews. He came for the whole entire world. He is a redeemer of the whole world, being a light to all the nations. Paul references this verse in Isaiah 49, references verse 6 in Acts chapter 13, when he and Barnabas are preaching to a group of Jewish people in Antioch. 
And the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, the Gentiles seemed to receive, and some of the Jewish people seemed to receive, but many others were jealous and rose up against them and started causing dissension among the people. And here's what Paul said. Paul and Barnabas, or let me read uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Speaking of the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul saw his ministry. The Apostle Paul saw his ministry as a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of what is being prophesied in Isaiah 49, verse 6. His ministry was the outflow of Isaiah 49, and specifically verse 6. Verse 7 says this servant of the Lord, we know to be Jesus, will triumph not with military might, but rather through suffering. It says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Notice it says next, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Then it goes on to say, kings will arise and pay pay homage to this servant. And princes will lie prostrate before him. So he triumphs, but he triumphs through being despised. And of course, we know, and we're going to get to Isaiah 53 very shortly, that he was despised and rejected in order to be the savior of the world. What will this triumph bring? What will this triumph through suffering bring? His weapon is the truth, and it comes through his sufferings, but what does it bring? Verse 8 says, It ushers in a time of the Lord's favor and a day of salvation. It says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul again references this verse in his ministry to the people of Corinth. And he adds something to it. Second Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and then he quotes this verse, Isaiah 49, 8, In a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he adds to it, and he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul, again, referencing this verse to the ministry of Jesus Christ, who has come to bring a time of favor and a day of salvation. But he adds a word, a very important word. Do you guys know what that word is? Not just a time, not just a day, but now. Now. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now is a time of the Lord's favor. Now is a day of salvation. Christ came, and since his death and resurrection and his ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit, favor is now. Salvation is now. It won't be forever, especially for those who continue to reject Jesus Christ indefinitely, but it is now, right now. Favor and salvation. Verses 9 to 12 show us what this favor, what this salvation means. It means freedom for prisoners. 
right, to the prisoners, he's going to say, come out of prison. It means light to those who are in darkness. To those who are in darkness, he says, appear. Come out into the light. It means provision. It means protection. It means he's going to show them clearly the way that they're to go. His people are going to walk in the light. I want to skip verses 13 to 17 and come back to that. Let's jump to verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20, I just think should blow our minds if we understand what's being said. Because I think it, it describes for us what can only be described as miraculous multitudes converted to this servant we know to be Jesus Christ. In fact, Richard Sibbs, who was a Puritan minister in the 1600s, said this, that God has appointed his time, excuse me, that God in his appointed time will bring forth the kingdom of the Lord Christ unto more glory and power than in former days. I presume you are persuaded. He just assumed that his people were persuaded. You may not be yet, okay? He goes on to say this, whatever will be more, These six things are clearly promised. I'm just going to mention one of them. One of them, he uses Isaiah 49, 18 to 22 as scripture reference. He says this, multitudes of converts, many persons, even nations converted to Christ. Even nations converted to Christ. I think it's Isaiah 60. It says, can a nation be saved in a day? Verse 18, the Spirit of God here seems to draw this picture. I mean, just imagine this picture with me. The Spirit of God seems to draw this picture of the whole world as full of converts, as the sky is full of stars, flocking into the kingdom of Christ. Don't you long to see that? Don't you long to see that? Is anyone with me here today? Wouldn't that be glorious to see that? I remember, I remember reading about um, Jonathan Edwards in, in his book, Religious Affections. He was, re, he was recounting what God had, had done during the time of the Great Awakening. And he thought for sure. I mean, you read his, uh, man, that's an overstatement. You read him, though, and it seemed like he felt like Jesus was coming any minute. Because the nation seemed to be flocking to Jesus at that time. Europe, the entire continent of Europe seemed to be flocking to Christ at that time. May it happen again in Ankeny, in Iowa, in the United States, in North America, in Europe, and across the entire earth. Verses 19 to 21 says spiritual wastelands and desolate places where there, there's not one person who could say they're, they, they belong to God. It's spiritually desolate and a wasteland is all of, all of a sudden full of inhabitants. Full of inhabitants that belong to God. Verse, 20 sa- verse 22 says, this clearly is the Lord's doing. This is not something we can orchestrate. We are partners with God. We are co-laborers with him to be sure. But this is something that God must do. And may we ask him and cry out to him to do it. What follows, I think, is something that I need to grow 
in. I can, I understand. I, I'm, I track with this. God, may this town and this state and this nation flock to Christ, all right? Multitudes, thousands and tens of thousands and even millions. But what follows, I find stunning. Because Jesus Christ, his rule is not just a spiritual rule, right? His rule is not just, he's not just the Lord of my heart and our hearts, right? But it's also a governmental rule. Verse 23 shows that kings and queens will serve God's people and the purposes of King Jesus. It says, kings shall be your foster fathers. Who? God's people. And their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they, they will bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall never be put to shame. This should not completely surprise us. For Jesus himself said, now I, I think I tend to over-spiritualize this. It should be taken in a spiritual sense, but also in an absolute sense. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He gathered his disciples to himself. And what did he say? What was the first thing he said to them right before he ascended according to Matthew? It's the first part of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he made everything. That he is the creator of everything. Whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All of those things he made. And he made them for himself. He is the ruler. He is King Jesus. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus Christ must reign until every enemy is put under his feet. Meaning he's reigning now at the right hand of God until every enemy is put under his feet. And the last enemy is death. And we know that when he returns and we are raised to new life with him bodily, death is utterly defeated. But until then, enemies are being put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Verses 24 and 25 ask, excuse me, asks and answers a question. The question is basically, can this servant, this Messiah servant, can he rescue and save from the mighty and from even tyrants? And the answer is, this servant is unstoppable. Jesus Christ is unstoppable in his power and authority. He will bind every strong man and every tyrant, and he will set their prey and captives free. This servant, Jesus Christ, will accomplish all of this, all that he's sent to do, which is the worldwide expansion of his rule and his kingdom. So Jesus is Lord. This servant is a king and a lord. And not just hypothetically, and not just of our hearts, but of everything. Of all. He is the lord and the king of everything. He is the king of all kings and the lord above all lords. To repeat Wilberforce, who said, The world is, prop- is the property of Jesus Christ. 
The world is the property of Jesus Christ. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. The world is the property of Jesus Christ, to whose kingdom the earth and the fullness thereof must belong. So, in light of this, there are two responses in our passage here. Two responses, and I think both legitimate, and they're found in verses 13 and 14. Two responses that I think are both legit, okay? The first response is that we should join the choir of nature itself in praising God and singing for joy at his great compassion for his people. Look at verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. I went to Colorado a few weeks back just by myself camping, um, and got up early in the morning, one morning, and sat on this little hill and could see, um, which mountain is it? Uh, Luke, which one is it out there? The big one. What's that? It was one. Of, anyways, doesn't matter. No, not Pikes Peak. Long's Peak. Thank you. Long's Peak. And one morning... It was so, I mean, another morning it was really cloudy. So, But one morning it was so majestic. And I read this this week and I was like, that's what, that's what Long's Peak was doing. It was breaking forth into singing. In other words, the triumph of the Lord's servant inspires unprecedented joy. And praise. And we, God's people that have been ransomed by this servant Messiah, don't you think we ought to join the mountains and the heavens and the skies that are declaring his glory night after night and day after day? If we see it, we should join in. Is there anything that would be more fitting? For those who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And whose purpose will never be thwarted. But there is another response that I also think is legitimate. In light of what we've heard today. Verse 14 says this. But Zion said. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. All this triumph, all this victory, this servant rushing through the world, saving, redeeming, restoring. But God's people, at least some of them, feel forgotten and forsaken. Or maybe this morning it just sounds like pie in the sky. Listen, I live in the real world right here, right now. Everything you're saying, Josh, just does not jive with my life because I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. The mountains are singing, but I'm not. The reason I say this is a legitimate response is two reasons. One, because I think if we were all honest here, if you've been a believer for very long at all, 
you may, I, I think we all probably would admit there has been a time in our life where we've felt this way and maybe even said this out loud or certainly in our hearts. Forsaken, forgotten. But I also think it's legitimate because of God's response. God's response is not one of rebuke. He does not say like he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You just need to believe. No. Listen to God's response in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Even a, even a mother with a nursing child. You, it's conceivable that they may forget them for a moment or a while. It says, even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. What tender, merciful, gracious response the Lord has. There's no rebuke. There's mercy. There's compassion. He sees where we are. He sees our lives. For he knows the end from the beginning. He declared the end from the beginning. He knows. And verse 16 is so sweet. In fact, your bulletin, I, think, I can't remember what I titled. I titled this message, Engraved in the Palms of His Hands. It's a little misleading. Up until yesterday, I thought that was probably going to be all I was going to talk about, but that changed. But it's so sweet. Behold, he says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. A nursing mother may forget their child. I will never forget you. You're engraved on the palms of my hands. How could I forget you? Your walls are continually before me. Listen, listen to those two phrases. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. Both this past tense sense that you are engraved. I already did it in the palms of my hands. And then right now, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your feeling forsaken, your walls are continually before me. I think it's to conjure up images of Jerusalem and their walls in ruins. But they'll be rebuilt. Your walls are continually before me. This phrase, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. We are being beckoned to envision God's hands opened up to us. I remember going through the Gospel of John. And we got to John 14, and I happened to teach on that. And where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I just was overwhelmed with the sense that God is a father, and he is incredibly generous. And I see that here. His hands are open to us. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. He's beckoning us to see him and to see his hands opened up to us. But remember, God is invisible. But Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So I think we're being beckoned to see Jesus, the image bearer of God, the image of this invisible God that we worship, our father, With open hands to us. I've engraved you in the palms of my hands. When you see Jesus with his hands open to you. 
I mean, with the eyes of faith, right? I don't mean we have to wait for him to appear to us visibly. Through the eyes of faith, when you see Jesus with his hands opened up to you, what do you see? Do you not see the nail prints in his palms? Right? Is it not like Thomas in John 20 when Jesus came to him and said, Thomas, look at my hands. Is it not like Jesus with his disciples in Luke 24 when he said, look at my hands, look at my feet. It's me. When Jesus comes to us with his palms opened up to us, clearly he wants us to see the nail prints in his hands. What affection he has for you. What affection he has for us. He's shown it. Look at his hands. Look at the nail prints. Can he forget you? Are you forsaken? Are we forsaken? Are God's people? Any of them who call upon the name of Christ, any of them who are truly and really Christians, no matter what we feel or see with our eyes, are we forsaken? Are we forgiven? Forget, are we forgotten? May it never be so. No. Song of Solomon 8.6, the bride says to the bridegroom something very similar. In fact, old trans, really old translations have hand instead of arm, but it says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm or hand, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Jesus, our bridegroom, says to his bride, look at my hands. I can't forget you. You're not forsaken. You're not forgotten. And to think that he's alive. Jesus is alive. It's not just we're to look at an image in our mind of a dead martyr savior who kind of saved us. No, 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 no. He is risen. He is conquering king and savior and bridegroom and God. This is an everlasting memorial of his love and care for you. And of course, it takes us to the cross because we see his nail prints Jesus Christ was forgotten and forsaken so that you never would be. So that you never, ever, ever would be. Jesus on the cross, Matthew 26, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry that? Because at that moment he was forsaken by God as he bore the judgment for our sins. He was forsaken. He was God forsaken. God, the Father, turned his face away as his judgment was poured out on Jesus for our sake, so that we would never be forsaken. Jesus Christ was despised and rejected so that you and I would be be accepted and loved by God both now and forever. Jesus Christ was treated with contempt so that you and I might be an object of grace forever. Look at, you're engraved in the palms of his hands. If this is true, if all that I've said today is true, the triumph of the gospel over the next 500 years or 5,000 years, 
or 200 years or 100 years, 50 years. I don't know. Who knows? And that our hope, our hope here in the present also connects us with Jesus on the cross and, our hand, and, our, and us being engraved in the palms of his hands. How should we then live? Very briefly, very quickly, three things. This morning, receive God's favor now. Receive his salvation now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but now. Maybe you're someone here today and you are feeling forgotten, forsaken by God. You feel like God is, you've been left in the dust. Now is a time to know and receive and walk in God's favor and salvation. So receive it today. Don't be someone who says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I got saved 16 years ago or 30 years ago or two years ago or six months ago. Paul says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Receive it today. Walk in it today. Look to Jesus today. Because that's where grace and favor and salvation come. Number two, we should be men and women of uncompromising truth. If the kingdom advances and continues to triumph in the truth, we should never ever be people who are ho-hum, lackadaisical when it comes to the truth. Said of Jesus that his mouth was made like a sharp sword. How does the kingdom of Christ triumph? How does the gospel, how is the gospel victorious among the nations? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Through the proclamation of the truth of who this Messiah, of who this Jesus is. So we should be people, men and women, and children of uncompromising truth. And third, this goes along with it. We should see ourselves as co-laborers with Christ in his kingdom. Paul in Acts 13 very clearly saw his ministry as the outworking of Isaiah 49. And we should too. Not in the same way as Paul's was. I get it. Okay, He was the apostle to the Gentiles. I get it. Right? There's something unique about Paul. There's not going to be another apostle Paul or anyone at all like him. Okay, But in small ways, our ministry is meant to be an extension of Isaiah 49. As Christ is proclaimed and declared that now is the day of salvation. He's the life for all the nations. In other words, we should live very deliberately as men and women of hope. Hope in God. When you see evil, don't wink at it, but also don't cower before it. Rather, be like John Wesley, who said this. This is, this is during the time of the Great Awakening. He was ministering a lot over here in America, but also in Europe and England. He said, I was so surprised so much drunkenness, cursing, and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time? Saying, I've only been here a short time. I've seen so much cursing, swearing, so much darkness. I've never seen it packed in such a short period of time. And then he says this, Surely this place is ripe for him who came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't that amazing? 
He has chosen to have his kingdom advance through those who partner with him in his triumphant work. N.T. Wright says something like, in his, in his book, um, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he says, we are to take the victory of the resurrection to others. So partner with him, co-labor with him, see this as Christ's agenda for the world and get behind it and partner with him and with others. Be someone who lives in hope that Christ presently reigns until every enemy is put under his feet as his kingdom advances and as the gospel triumphs in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is authoritative. It is powerful. It's uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's living and active. And God, your words can change our lives. My words cannot. And so God, I pray that what was spoken, that which was true and accurate, you would take and seal by your spirit. And that it would have impact in our lives. And the way that we live, we'd be men and women fundamentally of hope. Men and women of truth. Who co-labor with Jesus Christ. To see his kingdom advance. And the gospel flourish and grow. And triumph in the world. Starting in Ankeny. And in Des Moines. And in this area where we are. And wherever you may have us in the future. To your great honor and glory. God, I just confess that I have lived with a pessimistic view of the future, probably more unconsciously than consciously. And I repent of that. For Christ reigns and rules now. And he will until every enemy is put under his feet. The last one being death itself. When Jesus comes back here and his people are raised with glorified resurrected bodies and death is snuffed out forever. So, God, we rejoice in that. Give us hope, Lord, as we look to the future, as we look to our future, whether it's five years or 50 years we have left on earth for some of the younger kids, 70 years, 80 years. And, God, that we would see ourselves as co-workers, co-laborers with you in your work for the rest of our lives in hope, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and may he give you hope as you leave today and as you live this next week and month and the years ahead. You're dismissed.